Hello, I am the host of Shifting Culture, Joshua Johnson. I just want to come on before the episode and tell you all thank you for listening. Did you know that big things are coming for Shifting Culture and you can be a part of it? We have just launched a Patreon. When you become a monthly patron to the show, you will get our episode ad-free, get early access to episodes, be able to download episode guides, and get bonus shows. Go to patreon.com slash shifting culture to support all that we are doing. Your support means that we can continue to help the body of Christ look more like Jesus. Again, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture. Thank you so much. Now, on to the episode. Godly power only works when people are mutually submitted to God. And we are living in a world where not all of us are. And so there will be times when Christians entering into the world have to use worldly power. But it will only accomplish what Luther called preservatory function. It'll only preserve the world. It won't save the world. You get what I'm saying there, Joshua? Uh, I think it's a huge and important point. And I think what the church always tries to do is use worldly power for God's purposes, and they limit what God would do because God's not a coercive God, and he will not work according to worldly power. Hello, and welcome to the Shifting Culture Podcast, in which we have conversations about the culture we create and the impact we can make. We long to see the body of Christ look like Jesus. I'm your host, Joshua Johnson. Go to shiftingculturepodcast.com to interact and donate. And don't forget to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast app to be notified when new episodes come out each week. And go leave a rating and review. It's easy. It only takes a second, and it helps us find new listeners to the show. Just go to the show page on the app that you're using right now and hit five stars. It really is that easy. Thank you so much. And find us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Threads, YouTube, anywhere. Uh, I post a lot of video clips and quotes. You could interact there. So find us at Shifting Culture Podcast. Previous guests on the show have included Nijay Gupta, Jonathan Tremaine Thomas, and Lucy Pepiet. You could go back, listen to those episodes, and more. But today's guest is David Fitch. I'm so excited that he comes back on the podcast. David Fitch is a professor at Northern Seminary and a pastor at Mission Renew Church in Westmont, Illinois. He is married to Rayanne, and they have one son named Max. He's coached hockey for the YMCA USA Hockey Program for seven years. David teaches, speaks, and writes within the fields of Neo-Anabaptist theology, missiology, culture studies, political theory, and ethics. He writes from time to time on his own page at Missio Alliance on his own Substack for Christianity Today, Outreach Magazine, ChurchLeaders.com, Ethics Daily, and multiple other sites, magazines, and journals. He is co-host of the Theology of Mission podcast, and his latest book is Reckoning with Power from Brazos Press. David Fitch and I reckon with power in this conversation. We talk about worldly power versus godly power. What's the difference? Why do we need a new relationship with power? We talk about mutual submission, engaging the table for reconciliation and justice, non-coercive evangelism. We even engage in a conversation around power dynamics in the Middle East. It is a fantastic conversation that is much needed as we continue to encounter abusive power 
in the church. So join us as we reckon with power and hand over the reins to God. This is my conversation with David Fitch. Well, Fitch, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me again uh, on Shifting Culture. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so good to be with you, Joshua. Do you prefer Joshua or Josh? I can't remember because we were on the podcast a couple years ago, and and I, it's been a while. So is it Josh yeah. or is it Joshua? Uh, I like Joshua. I respond to Josh. So, what does your wife call you? My wife calls me Joshua. All right, I'm going to call you Josh. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> my parent, my parents call me Josh. My wife calls me Joshua, and. Uh, yeah. So in my case, uh, the only person who calls me Dave is my wife. Ooh. Virtually anybody who gets to know me, especially my students at Northern Seminary. And, and this is this all started because they talked behind my back on the chat rooms. <laughs> and everything. They just called me Fitch. And I said, well, for Pete's sake, just call me Fitch. So all my friends just call me Fitch. Please call me Fitch, Josh. <laughs> all right. I'll call okay. you Fitch. That's perfect. <laughs> All right. We'll we'll reserve our 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 real names for our wives. And absolutely. <laughs> Great. Well, let's reckon with some power this morning. And I think uh, it's a necessary thing. I think it's been all over uh especially with the church is we're trying to figure out what what power looks like, what power means and how we're abusing power or not abusing power and uh usually I think we're taking some things sometimes with the wrong lens to to make amends and and to figure it out. And uh, you wrote this great book, Reckoning with Power. And I really, really think that we need to to take uh, some of your advice here and uh, use some some godly power. So I'd love to get into some definitions at the beginning. What is power and what are the types of power that are out there? I kind of start out the book by talking about the standard account of power. And uh, I, I say that something like, I would like to disrupt that. I would like to discredit that. But the standard account of power is there's only one power at work in the world. And according to Max Weber, that, that is power of one person or organization over another person or organization whereby person A gets person B to do what person A wants them to do. And uh, so power over, like, you know, when the uh, if feudalist times in Europe, if you didn't pay your taxes, the, ser- the knights would show up on behalf of the serf and, uh, and with a sword make you pay the tax. They force you to pay their taxes. It's a little more complicated than that now, today. And so now we see, and I cover in the first chapter, several different ways of understanding how power works, not through explicit coercion or somebody putting a gun to your head or something, but more subtly in the discourses of our time, in the way, let's say, male, females uh, interact together, what Laura Mulvey called the male gaze, what Foucault talks about, the technologies of power, whereby, you know, if you go to a doctor and the, and, and there's, a, there's a power relationship there. The doctor is an expert. He's certified. Supposedly, he's objective. It could be a her or two, by the way. He or she is objective. And I'm the patient. And I chose to come here. And, you know, therefore, I better listen to the doctor. And uh, 
Now, no one's going to say I was forced to do that, but there is a woven discourse of power in the medical world, and a lot of people are questioning it, right? Uh, do those drug companies uh, pay the doctors a lot of money to prescribe those drugs to me? Uh, what about all the other ways that I could be taking care of myself health-wise instead of taking that drug to get my cholesterol down? Why about why not just go, not go to McDonald's so often? Okay, by the way, I admit I am I'm drinking McDonald's coffee right now, so that was kind of a duplicitous statement on my part. But you know what I'm saying? There's all these ways power's woven into the discourses of our lives, and it's becoming more and more obvious that we need to become aware of them. Now, the church, <laughs> we're becoming more and more, I'm sorry, I'm going off on a riff here, but we're becoming more and more aware of how power's going off the rails. And this is not the power of anybody. Like when you go to church, no one's putting a gun to your head to go to church. But when you go into that church, there are all sorts of interwoven power structures that you are assenting to, that you might even find yourself trusting. And yet, oops, there's, there's something mischievous going on, coercive going on, abusive going on. And, and so... Joshua, I think it, we're at a point where we've got to do some reckoning. Uh, we are seeing power abuse everywhere, but most alarmingly in the church. And it's time to take a look at what's going on. Yeah, so this abuse is being unveiled. This These power dynamics are being unveiled. Why do you think that now is the time that our eyes are being opened or we're starting to speak up? I don't know what is happening in the, the world, in the church world today, and why are we in this predicament that we're in of an yeah. abuse of power all over the place? Yeah, well, it's that that's a fascinating question, and I think there's three or four different layers going on there, but let me just try one to get our conversation going. Uh, we are coming out of, those of us who've lived 50 years we are coming from a time when we were babies, when the church was trusted, when Christianity was basically in the culture, when the clergy had authority, and it was never questioned, it was rarely questioned. And it all fit nicely together, by the way, with the way government was working at the time, everything. We are now coming out of that time when Christianity is anything but trusted in our culture. I think it's mistrusted. I think there's a resentment in the culture. And so now you have this shifting, this massive shifting of cultures where the pastor, hey, I assumed I, when I got this job and somebody gave me the title of reverend and I went through three years of seminary that I'd have a job and then people would trust me and they're not trusting me. And that's the big shift in power. Now all the assumed woven into the system powers are being questioned. And so we have people that not too happy with it. And so this has kind of exposed all the ways power's been there, but we never knew it or recognized it. And furthermore, we're rejecting it. And now abuse, violence, coercion. I mean, look at the way sexuality has changed in the last 50 years. Everything was assumed, never questioned 50 years ago. Now, we're all freaking out. Oh my goodness, it's all questioned. And what's your first impulse as a parent of a teenager? Oh yeah, I, I got to do something. I got to get defensive. 
I got to pull that phone. I got to quit paying for the phone. I got to order this kid around. How many know that doesn't work? And so this is kind of where we're at now uh, in, in the church today is all the abuses of power, our reaction to the loss of power, and it's just uh, reached its, its ugliness, and we need to reckon with power. Well, okay. So we need to reckon with power here. Everything's being exposed. How does the world reckon with power? What does worldly power look like? And give me some examples of how it's being yielded at the moment. Perhaps I need to start with the idea that there are two powers at work in the world, not one. And worldly power is power over. And although it it masks itself in various different ways, it's always coercive. Like the government. The government legislates things, and then you have to comply or else. You have to pay your taxes or else there are consequences. Coercion. Worldly power is, is power over, but godly power is never coercive. It is always by his presence, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that he works among us and, and convicts us and restores us and calls us to reconciliation and changes things. Notice I'm talking about social worlds, not just my inner soul. He certainly works the power of God by his presence works in my soul, but he also works in the world. This is something we've lost. And so I want to say there's two powers at work, not one. In the book, I go into Genesis, you know, Genesis where God was present in the garden with Adam and Eve. And, and, and when they usurped his power by becoming, by eating of the fruit of good and evil and wanting to become God themselves... This was the great sin of the garden, trying to become God, usurp power over. God never does that. We're the ones who did it first. And then, and then they had to be escorted out of the garden because that was not the way of God. God is by his presence. And then we know in Genesis 6, violence broke out. And so ever since then, we've had two powers at work, God's power through Jesus Christ at work in the world and worldly power. And by the way, Jesus says, one more illustration. The disciples, they're, they're about ready to go to Jerusalem. Jesus is at the table. This is Luke 22, I believe. And uh, the disciples are f- trying to figure out, you know, who gets the power? Who gets to tell the other persons what to do? They think the kingdom is coming as they enter into Jerusalem, and it's going to be a kingdom a la Roman Empire kingdom. And Jesus has to say, you know how the Gentiles rule it over you, not so among you. Not so among us. And he points to the table and a new way of being together and a new way that the power of God through Jesus by presence shall be at work in the world. So we got two powers, not one. And forever the church has been blurring the two. Always has to go back and forth. Will we blur God's power with worldly power or uh, and then have to separate the two all over again after that blows up? And that's where we're at today. The blurring of God's power with worldly power, you know, I give several examples of churches, you know, Mark Driscoll, James McDonald, how they just blurred the power. They they started out as good people wanting to be the minister of the presence of God through Jesus and things kind of as they always do. People get saved. People get changed. Things happen. 
And then they took the power on themselves and everything went wrong. They blurred the power. I want to pull out a couple of things here. One, if I could think about worldly power and godly power, can can you say here there are two kingdoms at play, uh, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of God, and that's what happens in the garden? Is it something like that? Does that help have, if I'm thinking about this circle of a kingdom, there's there's this worldly kingdom, there's this godly kingdom, the kingdom of God. And we are trying to mix those two things together to assert power. This this has been going on. I have a chapter on showing how the church has always tried to figure this out. Augustine being city of God, city of city of man. And and how does the city of God, the the city of heaven and the city of the earth work together? This has always been the struggle because after the garden we have the temptation to use earthly power to do God's work. By the way, this is, folks, you got to get the book because this is kind of complicated. But the fact of the matter is, godly power only works when people are mutually submitted to God. And we are living in a world where not all of us are. And so there will be times when Christians entering into the world have to use worldly power. But it will only accomplish what Luther called preservatory function. It'll only preserve the world. It won't save the world. You get what I'm saying there, Joshua? Uh, I think it's a huge and important point. And I think what the church always tries to do is use worldly power for God's purposes and they limit what God would do because God's not a coercive God and he will not work according to worldly power. Yeah. Okay. Will you... Will you enter into the mess of the Middle East with me for a moment and talk about sure. power. Let's yeah. let's go with Israel, Palestine. If we have a lens of worldly power, we have one power structure over the other. Uh, Israel, it, it admittedly wants to, to make sure that Palestine is in this little corner. They have a lot of military might. They have a lot of actual violent power that they could evoke. And yes, because there is this this power dynamic and imbalance, you know, there's, you know, Hamas came in and did horrific things to Israel, murdered women and children, took hostages. And for a lot of people in the world now, because there is an imbalance of power, they say whatever way necessary to get equity of power is going to be good. How do we utilize godly power, mutual submission in a place like that where n- not many are following the way of Jesus. Is it actually is it possible to enter into to a place where people aren't following the way of Jesus and exert godly power so that we could see the result of godly power which would would be like shalom and peace. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so, so first kind of point is we can never use godly power. If we're using godly power, it's actually not God anymore. It's us, <laughs> and so that's a big that's a big distinction there. But uh, I t- I talk about so so let me just because because just war is a long tradition 
especially in Roman Catholicism, where there sometimes will be evil that needs to be overcome versus, uh, so, so we have to use the lesser of the two evils, et cetera, et cetera. I, I talk about worldly power, like, like inter- I, I give the example of a traffic light at a busy intersection. And that uh, what the traffic light does is it, it, it kind of coercively uh, orders traffic so we don't run into each other and kill each other at the intersection. You know, um, and by the way, if you don't obey the red light, you're probably going to get a ticket. And if you get too many of those tickets, you're going to get your license ticket. If you, get, if you get too many tickets, you might even go to jail. Coercive power over. But the intersection does keep people from running into each other and killing each other. But the, the two cars that are encountering the intersection, let's say, or, or the person behind you at the intersection that's honking at you because you didn't like step on the gas right when the green, it's not going to solve those problems. If, if you're giving the finger to the other person at the other intersection, it's not going to solve the conflictual anger and sin in the world. It's just going to hold it at bay. It's going to preserve it. And, and God's going to have to do that work, and that's going to be the work of the church. This is how I believe, anyways. Now, in, in Palestine, in Israel, one thing we learn about power over, it can, it can only preserve, it can't, it can't heal, it can't reconcile, it can't. We've tried. And, and we know the, uh, I was listening to a study uh, a couple of days ago uh, about the Iraq war. For every one civilian killed, you convert three into a, a terrorist. <laughs> you are not solving the problem through violence. You are creating more violence because that's the way violence works. It's the way of the world. It's not the way of Jesus who dies for somebody instead of inflicting violence back on them. Uh, it's the way of the world. And so when we come to Hamas, the awful, awful evil horrendous evil uh, of Hamas inflicted on Israel to go back and return that evil for evil doesn't solve the problem. I dare say it doesn't preserve justice. And so this is the work of worldly power. How can we create a preservatory approach that can keep people from killing each other like that traffic light in Palestine and Israel so that God can do his work? The ultimate work needs to be done by my Christian brothers and sisters in collaboration with Jewish brothers and sisters. Uh, I know many Palestinian Christians. We need to be the people of Jesus witnessing to another way. And that's the only way things will go. So there's two parts to the answer to the question. Yes, we, we must work for a preservatory solution there. But recognize that this, this can't achieve ultimate justice only Jesus can. And so the churches must rise up just like they did in the Jim Crow South in the 50s uh, and witness to another way. Yeah. So what is that other way? How do we how do we witness to that? And how do we say this is a better way? This is a way that brings justice and healing and righteousness in the place that is so desperately needed. All right, Josh, you're going to think this is uh, trite. All right, but I'm going to make an argument it's not. Christians gathering in Bethlehem or other Palestinian cities, inviting uh, Palestinian Arab Christians together with Jewish peoples 
around the same table until we figure out how to love one another. And let Jesus, here's what I'm going to say, let Jesus work. And I just believe that's the way true, incredible revolution is going to happen. I've got examples in the book. I, I talk I talk a lot about the Jim Crow South and John Lewis, who was a pastor, who uh, and the Student Nonviolent Coordinate Committees, basically out of prayer meetings, started meeting in Woolworths at the counter there, three to four at a time. Started out with three little dinner fellowships, turned into 52, and before you know it, the Jim Crow hegemony, the ideology of Jim Crow racism was disrupted, and people actually saw, oh, we can meet, we can gather, we can eat together, we can love one another, and some some dynamic stuff started to happen. I, I just think that's the way true revolutions happen. You know, as I worked in the Middle East and worked with Syrian refugees, primarily they had the saying, Sarbena Khubzamilla, after we've eaten together, basically just means that we have eaten together, bread and salt has happened between us. And this is where friendship can now take place. And only after we share a meal can we enter into this space of knowing one another. And so that's primarily what we did. We went in to you know refugee homes i mean the, the homes were like old goat sheds or tents or you know it was not the greatest of homes but we sat and we shared a meal and after we shared a meal they wanted to know us we wanted to know them we could actually go deep and then there was a lot of encounter of jesus because we were able to share a meal together so how do we in, in, enter into the table the table that will reconcile us and show that there is a a new way, a way of Jesus, a way that we can exercise power, that God's power can be utilized and we can love one another. How do we start to enter into table discussions? You know, I, I spent significant portion of my theological work dissecting the table and dissecting the different parts and the way it works. And I, I am just, it never ceases to amaze me how when we gather around a table and we just sit there and listen to one another and we, we invite the presence of the Holy Spirit there, no different than the priest invokes the real presence of Jesus at the Eucharist, and we then listen to one another and we discern together, kingdom breaks out. I, justice breaks out. Personal animosities are healed. Uh, but, but the story here, dude, is that for Americans who are used to traditional church ways, especially the modern church ways of the last 50 years, it is so damn difficult to get people to sit around a table for two and a half hours and do that regularly. I prefer once a week and pray for our neighborhoods and make space for God to work in our lives. Uh, I'm in a church right now. It's a fabulous church. I've been asked to be a pastor at this church and, and just getting people to think about being around a table is a challenge. It takes cultivation and vision. Well, but this is, you know, Rita Finger wrote, Rita Haldeman Finger wrote a book. I can't, now I can't remember. It's about the, the role of tables in Acts 
and how the table disrupted Roman culture and brought healing and justice into the neighborhoods. <laughs> okay, and so it might sound so so, but we have to have leaders who have a vision for the table and table fellowship. And you know, someone someone asked me, "What are you going to do about the racism in town here?" And I say, "Well, can you give me an example?" And they they go off on an example of of a town ordinance committee, and we I won't go into details on on the show here, but. Uh, one guy didn't want a restaurant because of this and this. I go, what are we going to do about it? Well, well, our first impulse, and by the way, I do believe in embodied presence through protest. I believe in, I believe that's a form of presence. <coughs> My first instinct, invite the guy to a table, have a brew, and have a black person from my neighborhood, a white person, him or her, and let's sit around and talk about that restaurant and why we would love that restaurant and what that restaurant would do in our community and how it would overcome some of the racial stereotypes and the racism that's endemic in our community. You know, a table. Let's start at the table. Let's start at the table. I agree. Let's go just have a beer and we could even just watch a hockey game. I didn't game. say beer for all my uh, Christian Missionary <laughs> Alliance friends out there. I said brew. A brew can either be a coffee or a beer. There it is. There it is. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Had a good conversation with the CNMA pastor yesterday. So, okay. hey, they're out there. Uh, we love them. And I know you do too because you're a part of them. We, uh, had, so let's, let's then dive into the local church and how do we exercise power? And so you gave me an example of, of Mars Hill, Mark Driscoll, you know, at the beginning of Mars Hill, they said, let's mutually submit one to another. There's no senior senior pastor. And then later on, he's like, yeah, forget that. You know, just get on the bus and we're, I'm going to, you know, run you over. So how do we, how do we lead a church? Can we lead a church? Or like, what does it look like to mutually submit one to another as the body of Christ, which I I believe we need to do, but also have a leadership team, you know, you're a pastor in, in your local church as part of a, a team that's helping shepherd others. How do we do both? Yeah, I, I think that a lot of people hearing me talk today think, oh, this is impractical. This will never work. We'll never get anything done. Uh, and I think that's kind of like... Uh, there, people think there, there's only two ways. There's autocracy, where one person is in charge and tells the other persons what to do. Or there's democracy, where every individual has their own opinion, and rarely do we agree on anything, so rarely do we do anything. Well, this is just not the way the church is described in the New Testament. Autocracy is not the way. Democracy is not the way. Uh, I would call it pneumatocracy, okay? And so what we do is, and by the way, there's, there's this idea of the way the gifts work in mutuality together. And so, uh, but there's still first gifts. Like in the end of 1 Corinthians 12, it's first apostles, then prophets, then evangelists. And, and so, so the apostles go first, frankly. 
uh, the ones who are leading into a place who have a vision. But that, but the Apostle Paul, as Tim Gombus in his rate, latest book shows from last year, Apostle Paul never exerted power over. He was always viewing the people he worked with as co-laborers. He refused to exert power over. He said, I must be present among you. And so, so the first gifts don't exert power over. Like, like I'm a kind of like an apostle. I've, I've been part of like eight church plants. I love church planting. I love going into a new turf and say, what's going on here, Lord? And how can we gather your people to be a witness to your kingdom? But, you know, I got to go in and I got to paint a vision. I got to call people into that. But then I got to, I got to go, do you see what I'm saying? I propose this. Do you see this? Or, and then so-and-so says, well, I'm a pastor and that that really ignores the spiritual needs of these people, or I'm an evangelist, and I I don't think we're dealing with justice, and together we submit one to another. But as I often in in pastor meetings say, make a proposal. I propose we need to do A. I submit to you. And the other pastors in the group, because it's always polycentric, always multiple teams, uh, multiple gifts, they will say, uh, yeah, I like A, but have you thought about what you're missing with A? So it becomes A plus B. And by the time we're done in an hour and a half, two hours, we have a great proposal that we have said uh, I, uh, I, that the mind of Christ has been met here. Let's go forward with it. And, and that's how I think leadership happens. And it lead, you know, Ephesians 4 has the fivefold that, that then equip the rest of the church to do the same thing. 1 Corinthians 12 has these initial first gifts that then equip the rest of the church to do the same thing. I think that's the way, the best way. But in Christendom, you know, very somewhat inefficient. Let's put everything in the top down and and get everything done according to a corporate model. And we kind of lost the Holy Spirit along the way. But we got a lot done. Or we thought we got a lot done. We actually preserved the church. We didn't grow the church. Yeah. Yeah. We did get a lot done, but then we saw the the flaws and the cracks of it, and we saw that it didn't amount to to much. And it was worldly power that we were exerting in the church to have this church growth movement. And unfortunately, we're we're seeing the the downfall of it at the moment of yes. what we're doing. I think some people in the in a congregation is going to say. And I, I know, especially if we're we're looking at the church through the lens of worldly power, they would still say that there are, are gifts and a leadership team that are mutually submitting one to another. And then they're saying, hey, this is what we're doing as a church. But there wasn't much say from the rest of the congregation. Um, and they go, it feels it still feels controlling. Like we're in this this moment today. I think that sometimes if you're viewing it through a worldly power, it will feel controlling. How do we reconcile that as the body moving forward? Yeah, well, we we are coming out of 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 a world of church where we a we're used to worldly power or coercive power or the power of office over getting a lot done. I I must acknowledge that. Even though there was the official clergy office, say, 50 years ago, a lot of them were humble leaders submitting to their congregation. So I don't want to throw everybody under the bus. 
Well, we are used to that. Secondly, we're mad and angry and resentful of that because a lot of us have come out of abusive uses of that. Because frankly, when you put worldly power under God's name, all the uh, it goes off the rails. All the restrictions are taken off, and now the person can go abuse anybody they want. Why? Because they're doing it for God. Okay, and so we're coming out of that, and so now anything that smacks of authority is viewed with sub, uh, suspicion. And so, in my experience, I've I've we've got to train people out of autocracy, but we also got to train them out of democracy. Because a lot of people think, well, we're just going to have a democracy. So one person gets to hold up the whole church because he or she's got a bugaboo, something that is really bugging them. And that's not the church either. So we need to recognize gifts, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and learn how to discern and submit to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and when, it's, when it's worldly power, you can always tell worldly power because it becomes abusive. You're not listened to, you're not heard. But together, uh, so, so I give a few few practices in the last chapter of uh, Reckoning with Power on how to think about that. Even if a church is quite large, like, like frankly, I don't know if you can do this in a 10,000 member church, but 500, 400, if there's an issue in the church, we are having a struggle to discern how to shape our church in relation to sexuality. Let's, everyone who wants to talk about this, who who will spend the next 10 weeks on a Friday night till midnight discerning the Spirit, hearing Scripture, hearing the voices of the hurting and the broken, we're going to meet for the next 10 weeks. Pray, listen to the gifts, and discern for our congregation the steps we need to take to be uh, a congregation that both in is inclusive, but also shaping of a sexuality that is faithful to Christ and not giving into the sexualization of our culture. You know, that that's what I call the Igthus meeting. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. How do we discern that together? That's a good question. How do we discern that together? So how do we discern the Holy Spirit? How do we communally listen together and discern the Holy Spirit to move forward to know that it sounds good to us and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I give a I give a few steps, but but this has been in practice for hundreds of years. The the Anabaptists were a group that brought it to the forefront. Actually, the Methodists in certain parts of their movement brought it. The Society meeting they brought it forward. The solemn assemblies of of certain groups. And, and simply, it's gathering together and praying, and then the leader leads through what is our question, and then we hear from the teachers, from Scripture, the ones that are already respected in our church for teaching. But we also hear from the pastors, the ones who are concerned for the for the real needs, hurting needs of our congregation. We hear from the evangelists in our midst. What does this mean for justice? And together we discern, we hear from everybody. And a good leader will be able to craft a summation of what she or he is hearing. And then we take, we don't take a vote, we take a consensus, one to five. One of my favorite one to five meetings was when we spent six weeks on women in ministry. Can women be ordained 
in our particular church for pastoral ministry, and 30 people showed up. And the two that were most adamant against it, uh, you know, one to five. One, it's it's evil, it's of Satan, this statement. Five, totally agree. Four, I don't totally agree, but I sense the Holy Spirit at work in this, and I can go along with it. Okay, and so those two uh, were fours. And I must say, they were fours. They didn't totally agree with where we came out, but they said, I trust what I've seen, what I've heard, and we can go forward of this because I trust this community now. And I think that's the kind of thing we need in our churches uh, on, on some of these key issues we're facing as we discern the future of a church in mission in the United States, Canada. I think that's that's so good. That's really good. I think I, I have a lot of people that really want to see cultures transformed. They want to engage on the margins, the n- neglected people. They want some evangelism, some mission. What does it look like for people to encounter Jesus? You have this this great sentence, this paragraph on evangelism. I want to read it because I, I really resonated with it. So this is right at the very end of your book. It says, we must train ourselves to do something so foreign to our age and to the evangelism strategies of times past. Be present in the hurting places where we live. Sit at tables with people. Listen. Be regular. Allow space for the Spirit to work. Know how to ask questions. Speak truth sincerely. Offer reconciliation. Invite people into the kingdom. Invite them to accept Jesus as Lord over our lives, our towns, allowing him to use his wonder-working power in their lives. This kind of evangelism is the mark of a church on the right side of power. How is that different than the evangelism that we have typically engaged in? Well, mo- most of us haven't been engaging in evangelism well, true. <laughs> for, for quite some time. The coercive tactics of the past, by the way, they worked when the majority culture was Christian, like, you know, you, you you have a Billy Graham crusade, God bless Billy, but you have a Billy Graham crusade and you convince everybody they're going to hell, that they're sinners in need of a salvation. Now, those words sin and salvation and hell and Jesus and atonement for your sin, that was probably mainstream culture maybe 50, 60 years ago. It wasn't unheard of even for people who didn't go to church to know what some of those words meant. Uh, and so when you, you know, when you ask somebody and challenge somebody with that kind of, yeah, it's coercion, but um, it's assuming by the way, that everyone's got this problem before you even talk to them. Uh, it's all sorts of problems with that. But when you got a hegemonist culture, you can get away with it. We don't anymore. And, and so that's, that's ideally not the way, what well, what that did was that took passive Christians and made them active Christians and invited them into a personal relationship. It comes out of all the revivalist movements of the uh, uh, of the previous period in the United States. So when you do that today, darn it, it's so coercive. When you you're a sinner, I'm going to prove it to you. Really, you know this is the biggest turnoff ever, and so no wonder most Christians don't want to do evangelism if they learned it that way. Man, evangelism is the good news of what God has done in Christ 
to restore and heal the world and restore and heal you as part of healing the world. And it's so good. But you don't have to say a thing, frankly. You just have to go sit there long enough and allow the spirit to work. And then you go, hey, I think I saw Jesus at work in your life. Do you do you see what I'm saying? Let the Holy Spirit do the work. And it's a totally non-coercive way that God works to bring people to himself. It is so illustrated it's so well in Luke 10 when Jesus says, go there, sit at tables, don't bring a purse, go vulnerable as sheep among wolves, sit and remain there, eat what's set before you. In other words, be a guest. You have no power. And then when somebody exposes that they are sick, pray for them. And then when they're healed, go, oh, that's the kingdom. I proclaim Jesus is Lord and he's working in your life. Do you see it too? That's the model, I think, of evangelism always until culture became hegemonous in terms of its Christianity and and Bill Bright published four billion. Did you hear that? Billion copies of the four spiritual laws. He's got the one way to talk about the gospel that's good for everybody. I got news for you. The gospel meets you where you're at in whatever struggles you're at, and it's different for everybody. Mm-hmm. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I love that. Uh, I love that. I think that's that's helpful. I mean, there's a, a few things that I, I wish we would uh, to really dig into, but I don't know if we have time. But one thing that I do want to, to really reckon with is there's this encampment of the church that says because there is worldly power we we have to exert that in the world so even with with christian nationalism of we have to preserve christianity within our culture so i'm going to i'm going to exert power over to be able to preserve christianity within our culture how do we engage the culture without a power over stance and exerting worldly power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I have a chapter on Christian nationalism in the book. It's kind of a diagnosis. And uh, this isn't directly answering your question, but I'm going to get there. I think we need to understand all the Christian nationalists for what's going on. And, And by the way, again, whenever you assume to do God's work with worldly power, bad things will eventually happen. Bad, violent, and 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 we all know what Christian nationalism does. It turns, we got people turned off to church now faster and more furious than we've ever had over this Christian nationalism. You know, in, in Quebec, Canada, they had the quietest revolution. The Roman Catholic Church tried to take over Quebec in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And the whole culture went away from Christianity, went away from Catholicism. They actually use Catholic words as swear words now in Quebec. This is an illustration of what happens when you use worldly power to accomplish God's purposes. And so, again, we must, I, I, I plea that for all the Christian nationalists, there's still some left that go, you know, this ain't working. We can still have a conversation with them. Do you understand the way God wants to work? And, and and can we understand his power? And can we now 
go be present to his work in the neighborhoods. And so we will engage culture, but it will almost always be in the way God came to engage culture by becoming present in flesh and blood in a manger in Bethlehem uh, at a particular time in a particular place and manifest who he was to real people in real relationships. And it spread from there. That's God's strategy. That's the way he works. That's what he wants the church to be now. Incarnational presence of Jesus, his body in the neighborhoods of all the hurting. And we start with the hurting. Why? Because as James Cone, as as uh, numerous other liberation theologians have reminded us, there's a privilege, there's an epistemological openness there to God that is not present amongst the affluent and the people who don't think they need him. And so, can can we engage culture the way Jesus, the way God engaged culture in the person and work of Jesus, as opposed to our own designs of getting things done and it never works? Yes, I hope so. I I I really think that this Reckoning with Power book that you wrote is really a crucial read for the church and for us to start to engage the world in a different way and engage the church in a different way and really heal from a lot of the abuse that is happening within the church. I really have hope for this. What's your hope for this book? What what do you hope that readers would get from this? And what does our lives look like if we truly do get it? I mean, my first impulse, Josh, was to say, I hope people get saved. <laughs> I hope people get saved from their addiction to power and control in politics, in, say, our own families, in our churches, and that we can make space for the power and the presence of the living, resurrected Christ to be among us through the Holy Spirit and do his work. I mean, that's really ostentatious and, and high, but, but, but this is what I think we need to do if we want to see a renewal of the church and a healing of the church and a healing of our culture in this time. Those are my hopes, but I have no, uh, this is Jesus is Lord. I have, I just put it out there and see what he's going to do with it. <laughs> that's fantastic. A random question here uh, at the end. What is the most memorable sporting event that you have seen that you have engaged in, either in person or watch on TV? What what was something that was really memorable as a sporting event for you? <laughs> well, it was the it was the first Stanley Cup of the Chicago Blackhawks hockey, folks. That's hockey. Uh 2010. I I'm in a little cabin in uh Canada. And the internet was really bad, and I'm watching the last game there, and and the internet's going in and out, and and I'm freaking out, and my son and I and my wife are going, oh, we're gonna miss it, but we did catch Patrick Kane's famous uh, goal when they, and and we were out in a cabin somewhere, but it was a rip roaring celebration all by ourselves in a cabin, the first Stanley Cup. Uh, since the early, early 60s. So the one, the first one I'm really conscious of for the Chicago Blackhawks. And I've been a Blackhawks fan all my life. Even when I grew up in Canada, my mom was from Chicago. We loved the Blackhawks. <laughs> that's awesome. And that's just, what a what a cool story, right in the middle of a cabin with your family, sitting around, 
yeah, having this great celebration of Stanley Cup. That's awesome. Yeah. Those are precious memories, really fun things. Fitch, how could people go out? How could people get your book, connect with you? Where would you like to point people to? Yeah, uh, I'm on Twitter at Fitchest, F-I-T-C-H-E-S-T. I'm on Facebook, which is probably my most lively platform where we ask questions and you can engage me and we can go back and forth on all these issues. It's culture issues nonstop. I have a Substack. Can't remember the name of it. It's David Fitch Substack or something, but you can find me. I call it Fitch's Provocations. Uh, and so, yeah, you're all invited into uh, this long conversation for what God's doing in this country and, and, and in Canada. We just pray for a new outbreaking of the Holy Spirit uh, through these conversations. Amen. Well, yes, let's have a new outbreak in the Holy Spirit. And I think really by working with the Holy Spirit, starting to discern what he is doing, coming together in mutual submission one to another, and then starting to engage at the table in conversation so that we could start to love one another, we could see what it looks like to enter into godly power and see God at work for healing and restoration and justice around the world. So, Fitch, thank you for this conversation. Oh, it was such fantastic. a great summary, by the way, Josh. Such a great summary of my book. Thanks for having me. It's been great to be with you. I'll see you in another year and a half. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to see more episodes like this, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron of the show. You can help us produce more episodes so that we can see the body of Christ look more like Jesus. If you become a patron on patreon.com slash shifting culture, uh, you will get early access to episodes. You will get episode guides. You will get bonus shows, hopefully, and more. So go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron. Also leave a rating and review on Apple podcasts. Uh, it really helps us out and helps us find new listeners to the show and just go and share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, people that you think would enjoy it as well. Thank you again for listening to the show. I hope you have a great week.